Hello, this is Dean Hess, Managing Editor of Respiratory Care. We are pleased that the December podcast is sponsored by Massimo. This is an introduction to Massimo Nasal High Flow Therapy. Soft flow provides warmed and humidified respiratory gases through a soft nasal cannula to spontaneously breathing patients with respiratory distress and other pulmonary conditions. Equipped with an advanced integrated flow generator that delivers consistent flow during inspiration and expiration, soft flow is designed to enhance therapy benefits while eliminating the need to connect to an external source of compressed air. Visit Massimo.com forward slash softflow to learn more. And now I turn the program over to the Editor-in-Chief for this month's podcast. Hi, welcome to the Restory Care Editor's Commentary and Restory Care Podcast for December 2021. I'm Rich Branson, Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. This month's Editor's Choice paper by Burton et al. evaluates the influence of urbanicity on mortality and hospital length of stay in subjects with acute respiratory failure. This is a big data study from the 2014 National Inpatient Sample Database comparing subjects from rural and urban facilities. They found that the odds of inpatient mortality were significantly higher among urban hospitals, both teaching as well as non-teaching hospitals. These findings include a number of factors and poorer outcomes in teaching hospitals is at first counterintuitive. Teaching hospitals typically have expertise and programs that smaller hospitals lack. However, urbanicity describes a population that typically has a greater severity of illness and more frequent comorbidities as a consequence of structural inequities in society, which limit access to healthcare, education, and employment, while increasing exposure to pollution and violence. Ben Kolick and Shellhammer provide an accompanying editorial, which reviews the social determinants of health and provides points for consideration for respiratory therapists to advocate for changes in health inequalities. As someone who's worked in a university hospital for over 40 years, we often tell ourselves that our patients are so much sicker than the private hospitals locally. But what we don't think beyond is why are these patients sicker and what are the structural constructs that have resulted in this happening? Garneri and colleagues performed a retrospective review of tracheostomy and the incidence of tracheomalacia in subjects requiring mechanical ventilation for COVID-19. Over a four-month period, they evaluated 151 subjects, nearly half of those required tracheostomy. Tracheomalacia was seen in 8 or 5% of subjects, a rate that's 10 times what's typically reported in the literature. Tracheomalacia was more common in women and in obese subjects. Piacini and co-workers provide accompanying commentary suggesting that prolonged mechanical ventilation, frequent use of prone positioning, overwhelmed staff early in the pandemic, as well as features of COVID-19 that are not fully understood, perhaps including microclots um, in the tracheobronchial tissue, contribute to this finding. Singh et al. described the use of anti-IL-6 therapy in over 11,000 subjects with SARS-CoV-2 in the New York health system. This retrospective review evaluated patients who received tocilizumab if they required low flow oxygen via nasal cannula and oxygen saturation remained less than 88%. Following administration of tocilizumab, overall mortality was reduced and when administered prior to escalation of oxygen therapy, it reduced the requirement for mechanical ventilation. 
while these are clearly retrospective data during challenging times, they are encouraging and prospective trials are sorely needed. Hewn and others evaluated peak expiratory flow during mechanical insufflation and exsufflation in intubated subjects and via face mask following extubation in an effort to ascertain the impact of endotracheal tube resistance. They found that peak expiratory flow during intubation frequently failed to reach the desired flow of 2.7 liters per second compared to face mask use. Their findings suggest that higher pressures are required to achieve sufficient peak expiratory flow in intubated subjects. We've published a number of papers on this topic in the past, including work from Guerin that demonstrates that higher pressures are required to meet the peak expiratory flows because of the resistance of the endotracheal tube. Um, this is one of the first studies to suggest a, an increase in pressure, and of course, it's maintenance of the expiratory flow bias that's important. Naradal performed a randomized controlled trial of high-flow nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation in subjects with COVID-19 to determine the impact on requirement for mechanical ventilation. The main outcome was intubation within 48 hours. There were no differences in groups prior to, prior to randomization. This small trial of 109 subjects found no differences between techniques, although high-flow high nasal cannula was associated with lower intubation rate at day seven. Coliani, Alfonso, and colleagues performed a prospective observational trial of the use of high-flow nasal cannula and combined high-flow nasal cannula and CPAP in subjects with COVID-19. Over a six-month period, they evaluated 113 subjects. 65 received high-flow nasal cannula alone, and 48 received combined therapy. The primary outcome was need for intubation. They found that the ROCKS index predicted failure of either method, but found an intubation rate of only 26%. In this study, both these systems proved to be successful. Lester and others performed an online survey of subjects with cystic fibrosis, parents of CF subjects, and healthcare personnel at CF programs. The aim of the study was to assess the use, durability, accessibility, and cost burden of compressors and nebulizers. They described the source of compressors and nebulizers as well as costs and reported problems. Perceptions of, prov of providers and CF subjects were varied. The authors conclude that access to these devices and education in, it, in their use is needed. Vershordal performed a cross-sectional analysis from a large database of over 21,000 subjects with normal pulmonary function, but at least one respiratory symptom. They also collected data on smoking history and frailty. Their findings suggest that respiratory symptoms, regardless of smoking history, are significant correlate of frailty in older adults with normal spirometry. As, as the nation ages, frailty in elderly patients will continue to be something that we look at and study and, and have to take into account as patients require treatment and long-term follow-up. Subat and others evaluated aerosol generation during methicoline bronchoprovocation testing. Using healthy volunteers, they evaluated ultrafine particle generation in a near-particle-free laboratory providing nebulization with different devices with and without a filter. They found high particle concentrations during testing, which were mitigated by using a breath-actuated nebulizer and a viral filter. Mustafa et al. performed a retrospective study of critically ill pediatric subjects requiring intubation in general hospitals before and after a simulation program, which included the critical action checklist. All over the United States, uh, disaster, a N of one occurs um, in some cases when a pediatric subject shows up in an adult emergency room.
Following the simulation program, the use of a cuffed endotracheal tube nearly doubled and adverse events were reduced. They suggest that a simulation-based intervention program can lead to improvement in pediatric airway management and patient outcomes in non-pediatric hospitals. Minari and co-workers evaluated the Modified Medical Research Council and COPD assessment test as instruments to determine physical activity in activities of daily living. The goal of the study was to determine the cut points for identification of physical inactivity. They, they identified the Modified Medical Research Council cutoff point of greater than or equal to two discriminated sedentary behavior, while the COPD assessment test cut point of greater than 16 and greater than 20 discriminated severe physical inactivity and sedentary behavior. Bellinghausen and colleagues contribute a special article on the role of respiratory therapists in the ICU recovery clinic. They described the experience of two centers and reviewed the literature. The paper describes a post-intensive care syndrome and the current increase in long COVID-19 subjects. They note that PICS symptoms are pulmonary in origin, pos positioning the respiratory therapist as a critical member of the PICS team. Burnett and Sharp provide an accompanying editorial describing the growing role of respiratory therapists in disease management and other post-hospitalization clinics. Chapburn, Ford, and Kaufman provide an intriguing special article regarding the value efficiency of respiratory care. They argue for a system to determine and document the value of respiratory therapists. The system moves away from simply documenting time of a therapy to a model of value efficiency. Value efficiency includes a measure of the value provided to the health system, value provided to the patient, and the value of the therapist in that role. Dean Hess provides accompanying commentary tracing the origins of the profession and healthcare reimbursement, as well as the necessity for the profession to evolve. The future of respiratory therapy is in patient-focused respiratory care protocols that allocate respiratory care towards activities supported by high levels of evidence. From a practical standpoint, I think the best way to explain this is if you perform incentive spirometry a hundred times a day in your hospital, that's a therapy that has very little evidence that, that it improves patient outcomes and your time would be better spent on fewer therapies that actually have a patient benefit. Um, I look forward to this ongoing discussion. Gonzalez Siegel et al. provide a narrative review of the adverse events associated with prone positioning. They found that the highest occurrence rates were severe desaturation, barotrauma, pressure sores, ventilator-associated pneumonia, facial edema, arrhythmias, hypotension, and peripheral nerve injuries. Um, prone positioning has gotten so much positive press during COVID-19, and I think rightfully so, and that for a long time, prone positioning is difficult to accomplish. It's not impossible. It does take dedication, effort, and people. Um, and we all look at the, the positive effects and it does have a impact on mortality in patients with severe hypoxemia. But we often sometimes overlook the complications that can be associated with prone positioning. And from an earlier paper in this issue, note that at least in COVID-19, perhaps an increase in tracheomalacia associated with the change in cuff pressure as you prone the patient and the torque on the endotracheal tube changes. Argoal and others provide a systematic review of the impact of asthma severity and outcomes in subjects with COVID-19. They found that comorbid asthma increases the risk of COVID-19 related hospitalization, but not severe COVID-19 disease. We appreciate your interest in the journal and your interest in the respiratory care podcast. 
and we look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.